Hi, and welcome back to the Mob Mentality Show. I'm Chris Lucian, and my co-host is Austin Chadwick. And today we have Ted M. Young uh, here with us to talk about a few interesting topics like uh, traditional training versus learning ensembles, uh, organizing code into testable hexagonal architecture, and doing TDD outside in, and refactoring in small steps. Uh, so, uh, Ted, uh, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit, and we can get into our discussions. Yeah, so uh, I have been a software developer for, for decades, um, always interested in, if nothing else, making my life easier. And so, uh, sort of throughout my career, it's it's been about how to like I'm, you know, I think like a lot of developers, I'm a little lazy, and it's like how can I do this better? How can I do this easier? How can I do this with less thinking? Uh, and so that that's uh, when I hit upon extreme programming back in 1989. Martin Fowler uh, was going around speaking about it. I was like, ooh, this is for me. I like working with other people. Um, I have a perfectionist streak, which causes procrastination when I'm doing stuff on my own. So I was always on the lookout for like, how can I work side by side with somebody? Uh, so that way I can, I can be focused and disciplined. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, more recently, when, when I learned about uh, ensembling, getting together, and it's like, oh, wow, I can do that. And it's not as intense. So, so that's kind of awesome. Um, so I've worked for, for a few companies you may have heard of anywhere from uh, eBay to Google to Apple to Guidewire Software, um, but I've always been sort of an entrepreneur kind of kind of guy, uh, and so now I'm back on my own with my own uh, training and education company, focusing on uh, making Java developers mostly um, just suffer less in their code bases and 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 live in live in happier code bases. All right. Well. Uh... Uh, that sounds good, and uh, it's a good segue into traditional training versus learning ensembles. So, what were you thinking there? What are you experiencing? Yeah, so I've I so when I was learning Java back in the mid '90s, right, pretty much when it came out, um, I sort of backed into to training. I used to be really like you know talk about introvert. Like I remember in school, there were there were times when I would be almost mute and not talk. Um, but you get me talking about something that I know about and, and I'm passionate about, and you can't shut me up. And uh, so I was doing custom software development, had my own little company, as I said, you know, entrepreneurial streak. And uh, a friend of mine was doing C++ training, and he said, hey, I got a call for some Java training. This was 98, 97, 98. Uh, and I was like, and he says, do you want to help put this together? I'm like, Okay, I know nothing about training, but I know at least you know something. I can sort of stay the one chapter ahead of of, of the other people, uh, and it turned out I, I really liked it. Um, and luckily, also I was apparently good at it, uh, so yeah, it was reassuring. Um, and we built up a training company, and uh, we were one of the first people to do Java training. Uh, but there was always something about it where it was. Lots of, you know, I mean, you know, you can imagine back in the 90s, especially like very traditional stand up in front of the room, do a bunch of lectures, do a bunch of, of demos. Uh, and this, you know, talk about lack of technology. These were all done on um, uh, transparencies. 
So I don't know if you've ever seen those for those of you out there, not old enough, but like it was basically a transparent sheet of plastic that you'd put on the thing that would project it the, through light on, onto a screen. And so that's what we did. We would print and you could print on them. So we would carry around these 600 transparency things. Uh, and so clearly you couldn't like change stuff on the fly and we were not doing um, much in the way of, of, of demos. But anyway, like there was something about it that felt very constraining um, and I didn't know any better, right? I, I, it's not like I had any formal training in training, um, but you know, it worked, people paid for it, um, a lot of travel. So I got burnt out on that and then shifted to just doing, doing software development. Uh, when I joined the most recent company I was working for Apple, I joined because I wanted to do some more training again. And there was an opportunity to, to do that internally. And. I, I missed it. And I was like, oh, I missed this so much. And the joy in seeing people like get that aha moment, like, oh, now, now I get it. Um, and learning from mistakes. And one of the things that stands out for me from doing some of that training, developing the training materials is some of the best stuff came out of mistakes that I made. Like, oh, crap, if we follow this direction, I put the direction in wrong and they get this exception. And it's like, oh, wait, but now I can teach them about what this is, what, what this means and how to get yourself out of it. Uh, and so then due to other stuff, I basically left Apple because it was a certain kind of environment that, that just wasn't working for me anymore. Um, and so I decided I wanted to focus more on, on, on teaching people. And because throughout the, the, the years and, and decades, uh, I'd, you know, as I mentioned in the, in the intro, I'd been exposed to extreme programming and wanted to do it a lot. And, and so, you know, testing was important and refactoring was important. And, you know, I've been using tools like IntelliJ IDEA for 20 years. So I know it inside and out. And, and I feel that most people are using like 10% of it. And so I want them to use all this power, this awesome power. And, and they're using like just this little tiny bit. And uh, when I went, you know, independent and started doing training again, um, I wanted to learn more about how people learn. So I did what I kind of consider the equivalent of a master's degree in instructional design and figuring out how people learn. I actually done some presentations on that uh, at some conferences. And um, that really has informed sort of what, you know, how, how, I, how I do things. Um, and so I've been, you know, then COVID happened and I was asked to do uh, a course and I basically you know, created it and delivered, delivered a bunch of times. And so where that leads into like how, you know, especially remote, it's, it's so hard to do training remote because I'm used to when I, you know, when I did standup training, I'd be able to look at people and see reactions and see puzzled looks or sleepy looks or distracted looks or, or whatever. Um, but the other thing that, that I missed uh, when, when sort of rent remote for training was being able to see their screen, like being able to walk around the room and casually, oh, you know, look, hey, what are you doing over there? Oh, that's interesting. And walk around and say, oh, what are you stuck on here? And let's talk about that. Um, and you can kind of do it remotely, but it's really hard. The tools are just not, not there for that. And, uh, so I figured, you know, well, that's just the, the way it's going to be. And then, um, I started hearing about, you know, re remote ensembling and I'm like, oh yeah, of course, totally could do that. 
and played with different technologies and different ways of, of doing that. Um, and I had been exposed to it at, at some some conferences. I remember Llewellyn Falco was one of the ones who who, who led me on to, to to some of that and talked about what was the possibilities there, and started doing it for for people who had been through some of my my training classes, so that we could work on a code base that was not you know let's start from scratch, but something that we had built throughout the course. Uh, and it was like, oh, this is the answer. This is the because one of the things that we know from learning is, is we need to get feedback. We learn not, you know, we can learn by trial and error, but that's that's a horrible way to learn. Like a lot of us do it, I think, especially in this industry, because there's no cost to it. It's not like, you know, I know people have woodworking hobbies. Well, trial and error, that can build up, you know, expense and possibly hurt limbs. Whereas with, um, you know, coding, it's like at the, at, you know, producing anything for production you just, or if you are then your trial and error is a pretty big error but when we're learning the best way to learn is to get feedback from someone or something that can tell you you're on the right track or not and you know we get those in the natural world like I remember when I'm teaching my son how to ride a bicycle it's like well you just got to learn how to balance but there's also then sort of progressions on how you how you do that so the sort of the sequencing but being able to really see where people, you know, from for me as a as a as a teacher, as a trainer, to see where people are going off, and being able to then correct them, and then being able to use that information in the future, saying, "Watch out for this." Although, despite saying "watch out for this," they will still run right into that problem. So, learning sometimes you have to you have to hit the wall a little bit. And so now I've been switching, like I've been reducing the amount of of sort of real time live sort of traditional training. I still do it because that companies pay for that. That's how they work. That's how purchasing works. That's what they know how to buy. Um, but over the past six to nine months, I've been able to, to start slowly sell them on, look, the training is great, but it's two days, four days, whatever it is. You don't really learn a lot. You get exposed to a lot and stuff flies by and maybe you catch some of it. Um, but the rest of it, like being able to then incorporate into your work, that is something that is it really just has to be, you know, water on a rock, just constantly trying and trying again. Uh, and so there's a couple of companies where I'm doing weekly ensembles with, you know, a couple of groups. And it's just so awesome to see like, you know, the first few, everybody's sort of, what's, what's this all about? You know, because they don't have experience with it. How do you work in this? The technical stuff of how do you switch? That's, that usually gets, and just, you know, whose job it is. And when I'm doing the learning ensemble, as opposed to a traditional ensemble, where you're usually like one that we're actually creating work product, um, the learning ensemble is, is uh, somewhat different. Like I have a much stricter way of like, the navigator is the only one who can say anything. The driver is, you know, fairly, you know, fairly strict, you know, strong pairing kind of thing. But I want the navigator to be the focus. Other people know, may know the answer, but I want the navigator to be the one who's learning. And so this, this sort of spotlight of learning on the navigator as, as we rotate out, it's like, yes, I know, I know you know the answer over there, but I want, I want her to, to, to answer this because we learn also from the struggle, right? We have to think and focus thinking on what's going on uh, is, is really it's like, oh, now I get it. 
Because if somebody else who knows jumps in, then that person didn't have a chance to think through the, the process. So that's where it's a little bit, the, the learning ensembles are a little bit different from, from the regular ensembles. Um, and so now like I've, uh, so I recently launched a course, um, a self-paced course on hexagonal architecture. Uh, and this has been like what I've wanted to do for, for years because it's like, look, there's the great, some great stuff with lectures and videos and text, um, but you know the real learning is going to happen during these office hours where you have Q and A, but also learning ensembles where we'll actually apply some of these things, uh, and that's that's really, you know, what what I want sort of my my future to be. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, and um, I had some more questions about your learning ensembles, but maybe. Uh... Uh, we'll get some definition of terms uh, first. So you mentioned, I'm going to mispronounce it, hexagonal. Did I say it right? Yes. <laughs> uh, do you mind giving a quick definition of that so people have a... a yeah, so, um, yeah, so a lot of people know it as ports and adapters. Um, mm -hmm. So hexagonal arc... I, and so Alistair Coburn, back in 2005, wrote up this pattern. He called it hexagonal architecture. Uh, he later called it then ports and adapters because those are two of the key patterns, um, and and some people still refer to it that way. I prefer hexagonal because ports and adapters is just like names of two patterns that happen to be part of this thing. But I think it's the overall um, way of organizing your code, uh, and it's still so we hopefully maybe have layers in our system that are well defined. Although in my experience, they're not all that well defined. So. Hexagonal is basically a way of organizing your code, design the code, having clear separation between uh, different parts. Your uh, and it fits really well, although it doesn't require it. It fits really well with domain-driven design. So your domain is at the center, um, and so it really focuses. Instead of having sort of a vertical stack, it refocuses the domain in the center. This is it, and then everything else in terms of interacting with the outside world. Obviously, you need it because otherwise, it's just sitting there running in memory with nobody looking at it. Um, but that's somewhat secondary to the focus on 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 the business. And for me, I came to it um, because I was trying to make code more testable. Like I, I have this, you know, I always say, let's make. How can we make this code more testable? And I noticed when I was really pushing on that, it's like, wait a minute, I, this looks like this other thing. And over time, it's like, oh, this makes it so much easier to test by making it clear the stuff inside of the hexagon has no reference to anything concrete in the real world. No IO, no hardware, no nothing. And so therefore it's trivially unit testable. And then the hard part is then integrating it, but also the hard part is getting that stuff right. Uh, and I see this over and over again with code bases is when IO of any sort gets mixed up with domain stuff, it just makes it so much harder to test. Um, <laughs> so. There's other architectures, clean architecture, onion architecture that are mostly the same, but um, I go with hexagonal because there's some specific details around uh, the things sort of that connect with the outside that are uh, that are separate from one another that makes um, code organization better. Nice, nice, cool. Yeah, so one follow-up question I had kind of, it's maybe a learning ensemble with hexagonal architecture is how do you, so, how do you translate or help people want to learn in an ensemble? Because like you were saying before, the problem was companies are used to buying lecture solo lab style things, right? Or whatever. Um, 
and it's usually a large amount of people. <laughs> what I remember from a lot of my uh, corporate training, especially in previous uh, careers, is that you know the the whole incentive structure is to get as many people in the classroom as possible, and which just takes away you know the the ratio from teacher to uh, student as just gets bigger and bigger, right? Uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah. How do you handle those kind of uh, influences in the culture and lead someone into an ensemble style learning? <laughs> um, so I was mostly getting so so the the companies I've been able to sort of sell the ensembles to is where I've had basically a strong internal person who was pushing for it. Okay. Um, and they were pushing for it because they experienced it because they had taken one of my public courses that, you know, basically public where you don't have to be a company, you're just an individual signing up. Um, and the learning ensembles I, I, uh, I basically did for free, mo mainly because like, I want to learn too. And like, that's one of the other things that, that, that I didn't mention is like training after you've done a training class, like I one of my hexagonal architecture class, I've taught 40 times. I'm mm. like, I know exactly how this goes. Like I keep, um, I don't know if anybody else does this, but I keep very precise when I'm leading, when I'm doing the regular training of timing of like, here's where I started this section. Here's where I started this section. Here's where I started the lab. Here's where we took a break. And I look back and I compare and it's like, sometimes it's a little scary how accurate to the minute it is between the, you know, another time you'd expect like it would change. And sometimes it does, but, um, but like after, you know, 30, 40 times, I'm like, I'm not learning anything anymore. And for me, one of the things I love about training is not just sharing my knowledge, but but I'm also experiencing their learning and and sort of seeing different things and me getting being challenged and, and learning as well. Although occasionally somebody will come up with something and ask a question. I'm like, wow, where did that come from? Why didn't I think of that 39 sessions ago? Like this happened actually very recently. And I was like, oh, wow, actually, that's really interesting. Um, but that you you sort of if you graph the number of times that kind of thing happened over time in my training is going like that. Whereas ensembles, I am learning just along with everybody else. Mm -hmm. And because we're exploring things, we're seeing, you know, we're we're building the code base. Like it, we're continually building it. You know, people swap in and out like any, you know, sort of ensemble. Um, and I'm learning as well. And I'm like, you know, for me, this is it it just feeds into all the other stuff that I do. And so it's you know, for, so for all those reasons, it's better for them and it's better for me. Um, and so the ones that I do for, for some of the people, then they say, Hey, they see a difference in the way they work. They see how affected the ensembles is like, wow, over the past six months, year, I really see a change in the way I work. And then they tell their company saying, look, we could hire for just the training, but really the, the, the real, you know, uh, really learning it. Is, is happening in the ensembles. And so um, that's that's how I've been able to convince some people is just by giving them that experience. And I, I always think about Jeepah Hill, you always talk about like, you know, give people the experience and that's, that's what you want. Don't try to debate or argue, just give them that experience, let them feel it. And for some things it takes a little bit of time. Um, so I'm happy to like do this for free because I'm learning, but also because I want them to experience it. And if it happens to sell something, that's great. But uh, that's that was never the primary mechanism, but it turns out that that really worked. Uh, in in the traditional training versus the learning ensembles, um, 
is there is there like a, a good segue that you do from one to the other um, in your traditional training right now do you also do some ensembling or is it just like are they like completely separate or you know how did you separate that out is that something else that the company needs to ask for that sort of thing or is yeah. yeah so so what i do is um i basically tell the company look we'll do the regular training because i think they're if we're going to do things that require knowledge they have to have that knowledge mm -hmm. and you can sort of drip it in in the ensembles um but i think there is a place for sort of look we're going to do more a, a bit more of a traditional training to to I'm going to dump a bunch of information. You'll get a little bit percentage of it, but at least you'll be exposed to it so that when I mention it, they'll be like, oh yeah, I remember that. You may not remember exactly what it is. Um, so what I've, what I found that works pretty well is, is do the traditional training and then go right into weekly ensembles that then builds on that. Um, and because my training is project-based, we basically start from where the project ended at the end of the class and continue developing on that um, going off in all sorts of diff different directions that, that's based on what the people want. For my self-paced course, it's um, the it'll be interesting because the learning ensembles that I'm going to be doing are, are while the course is happening. And so I'm going to have to adjust things where I can't rely on, we've already got this project built and we can build on it. So we'll probably do more um, things around just getting people used to, to things. So we'll do some katas. Um, using some of the techniques that they've learned in, in that week's class. Uh, and then eventually they'll have built up enough knowledge that we can start then building more, more sophisticated things. Cause I'm very much a believer in, you got to work on realistic code, whether you're learning or whatever you're learning, you're doing, it has to be realistic. And this is the kind of thing that drives me crazy when, when I see um, just the most trivial kinds of boring that, and, and boring from a sense of there's nothing interesting here mm -hmm. um, and there's nothing that, you know, or it's these little, little things that you build and then you throw away. It's like, I want to, I want to work on bigger, bigger things that, that have more interesting things, especially from a testing standpoint, um, that it's involving external services and databases and things like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, I, and I know what you're saying with, uh, you can teach an ensemble, uh, I teach and like we're working on production code ensemble and a lot of people teach me in those ensembles and that can work really well, especially if the group is really, really small on the smaller side. Right. And, uh, um, but it does help a lot if uh, a lot of knowledge is at least familiarity is right. uh, established beforehand. And so yeah. I think, I think you're right. I think ensembling, it almost fits well with almost like a, a lecture lab where, uh, some material to kind of become familiar and then to really like get it in your, your habits inside your, your soul yeah. and inside yeah. your fingers. Right. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can work well with ensembling and cool. And I noticed here that you mentioned uh, uh, part of your, what you're trying to teach is uh, doing TDD outside in. And so I'm having you define more terms, but it's helpful for me because I often get confused. I love TDD. But I often get confused with the different categories of TV not, and all that stuff. Yeah, you're and not so, the only one. Like I, I remember yeah. um, at one of the Agile Opens, um, there was a discussion about, you know, do you do outside in, inside out, middle in? And I'm like, I don't know what to call it. Uh, <laughs> like, the way, so the way I, the way I develop software, if I'm, if I'm, you know, building something, uh, and I 
do this. So I do, you know, in addition to, to the training I do, I do a lot of live coding on Twitch. Um, and so I'm just developing code and I'm working on, you know, one application is to manage these ensembles. So I've, I've been developing my own system for doing that. And I'm like, okay, I need to add this feature. Where do I start? Well, I need to figure out what do I need it to look like, right? What is, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a small project, but it's the same thing. It's like, what do you want this thing to do? Whether it's a user story or a use case, or you've done story mapping or whatever mapping you're, you're doing, you got to start from what do you want the thing to do? And it's from the point of view of the outside, mm. usually, not always, but if it's not, then like, how do it like, you know, and one of the things I show in, in, in my class is like, let's start creating this little, little class and start TDDing it, which is useful for sort of building this on the basics of, of TDD. But then I basically say, and this might be a spoiler for people who haven't taken my class yet. It's like, oops, we made a mistake. We, we created something that does not fit with the thing that it's supposed to fit with, right? We're trying to plug it in and it doesn't fit because the, how did we know what methods to create, right? And, and like, what, what is its interface? What is its API? How do you know until you know what it needs from, from something else? And so I always think about, I may not literally write code for the, for the outside. So the outside is often the UI, the HTML, or maybe it's an API starting from there or, or a message that comes in, wherever it is from the outside. The two questions I ask, I always ask um, as part of TDD is, what do you want it to do? And how do you know it did it? Mm. Right. So what do you want it to do? What's the behavior you expect? And what are you going to be able to, to check? Right. Because I'm always thinking from a testing standpoint. Um, is how do you know it did it? Maybe you'll yeah. get a response back that you can check, or maybe you have to check some 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 other system, or maybe a test double or an actual database. Um, but how, how do you know it did it? Uh, and so I look at that from, from the outside, like, okay, you know, I want to be able to create. Uh, recreate a scheduled ensemble because I want it every Friday. Well, what's that going to look like? Well, okay, I'm going to click on a button. Well, where's where's that button? It's going to be in this page. Once I have that, then I can say, all right, I don't need to create the HTML just yet, uh, but I now I know what, okay, it's going to do a post against this endpoint. Yeah. And now it's like, okay, I know what the post is. What it's going to contain is this piece of information. Great. Now I can start TDDing that. I can start writing a unit test for that. When I send a post, with this content, I expect it's going to do this. And I'm big on refactoring. So I know some people will then say, and then uh, we'll go and figure out the whole trail of, of components or method calls and then, then get down to a class. I'm going to write the code right in the controller. But then pretty quickly, it's going to be refactored out into a class. And then that class is going to be pushed into the center until it finally hits adding behavior onto, uh, onto a specific class. And nice. so it's. And this is why, to me, refactoring is such a such a huge, huge, huge important thing, because you can't develop you can't develop software that way unless you're refactoring. You will end up with a fat controller that has all the work in it and no domain, and <laughs> will suffer the consequences of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it almost sounds like. Correct me if I'm wrong. That you, as you. If you, you know, I've done different approaches of TDD, but in this outside in style, it's almost like you discover the hexagon as you go, as opposed to predefining it, uh, because you're just getting it to work first, right? And then you're like, oh, well, now that it's working, let's separate some of these concerns, right? Um, is it, would, would that be accurate? Yeah, or? yeah. I, I, I sometimes have this visual image of like um, yeah. this, this puzzle where you drop stuff and you shake it. 
and eventually stuff lands in the right place. Yeah. Like you just chief shake it and it's like, well, this thing is only domain and it's about, you know, references this thing. And you can see it because you start seeing little code smells of like, this is feature envy. This is doing behavior that belongs over there. And yeah. so all these things then pointed to where it should go. And so you're just constantly sort of looking for little code smells and say, oh, this, and I have a, a bunch of refactory maneuvers, one I call cohere method that solves feature envy. Other people have different names for it, but basically it's like, this belongs here. So, and I have these three steps that you follow to move it over there. Um, and now I have to decide, oh, what other tests do I need to write? Um, but yeah, it's sort of like, as you follow the smells and fix them, they sort of, the code settles into, into the right place uh, in, in architecture. Nice, nice. Yeah, and I think one thing I really like about the this approach is that it's very concrete and it's easy. it makes it easier to write the test, right? Like, well, if I'm using the system, I would, you know, from the outside, this is what I would expect, you know, yeah. and I don't know how I'm gonna get there yet, but. Right. Usually in an ensemble, people can answer those questions like, okay, well, what do we expect? You know, what are we going to do to trigger it and all those kinds of things? Uh, that's great. Yeah. Um, one struggle I've had, and I'm, I'm curious to your, your thoughts here. Um, I've noticed a tendency for people to want to stop early, like, hey, it works. <laughs> or, hey, we separated one of, you know, of the five concerns and we're like, it works you know, let's, let's move on here. Why do we keep, you know, I think uh, one joke in my current ensemble is uh, well, at one point in time when I was first ensembling with someone, someone was like, Austin, the amount of refractoring you want to do is ridiculous. <laughs> and we, we refer back to that moment a lot and joke around, but like, uh, do you ever get that kind of reaction as you're trying to refactor to something like a hexagon? And how, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? <laughs> um, it's really hard because again, it's one of those things that I can tell them all I want, like, this will be better, this will be better. And it's until <laughs> what I try to do is look for those moments where, see, I told you so, right? Like, not like literally I told you so, but I would, I would basically, um, so one of the things I do during the learning ensemble is, is I'm like pausing, we have a set timer of five minutes we've settled on uh, for rotations, but I'm pausing that timer all the time to basically say, all right, hold on, you know, learning moment, teaching moment. Um, we have a discussion, I say, see here, and in fact, we'll go and do things like we'll back up, we'll say, um, what if we did this first? What if you did this refactoring first? It would make this other thing so easy. In fact, let's do it. And I and so I can lead them through that because I have the luxury of we're not, we don't have a deadline for anything. So I use that opportunity to say, well, let's, let's back up and try this again a different way. And we'll do it sometimes we'll back up an entire, you know, a two hour session. And next time we'll just repeat it and go a different way to get them, you know, and this is the, to me, the whole purpose of, you know, a training learning ensemble is that that's what it's meant for is to try out and experience these different things. So you can see the impacts of it. And so I can, you know, and so I'm always taking notes of like, oh, this is going to be a good learning opportunity for later. Let's see if anybody notices um, and sort of noting these things down. If nobody notices and I'll say, all right, let's talk about, about this. And so um, I can, you know, I, I will always explain, look, this will be better if we do it this way and this will be easier. And this is, I, what I always try to get to is, is for me, form it in the phrase of this makes it more testable because, hmm. and if I can get to, to that, then I'm saying, look, if you're interested in testability, that's why we're here. At least that's why hmm. I'm here. Um, and this makes it, it more testable. And sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not. And so then I'll, I'll push us down that road sometimes um, if I can see 
you know, a few steps, we're a few steps away from that to, to, to get them to there. So it's a luxury I have as, as, as a learning ensemble as opposed to getting work done as we can do that. <laughs> nice, nice. Good. Um, yeah, uh, maybe one question with uh, uh, the hexagon again is um, the, so you, you taught it for a long time in the kind of traditional style, and then you've been teaching it uh, at least for a little while, the ensemble style. What's the big difference you've seen? I think you talked about some things for yourself, like you get to learn too, which is great because I, I love learning from others ensembles. What have you seen for the students uh, in the in the courses? Um, so that they're going through it was hopefully in an accelerated rate of what I went through learning hexagonal architecture. Because one of the things about hexagonal architecture is like you look at Alistair's original write-up, it's not very detailed. Um, it's just, you know, he wrote up a pattern. He didn't, you know, he probably didn't think all that much of it. Um, and there are different sort of interpretations of it because it's it's not a specification. It's not like a pattern that was written in a book and reviewed and and, and so on. Although there was some discussion on the C2 wiki, but um, it took me years of a lot of playing with it to finally get to my interpretation of it. And I have some differences from from the you know what what might be the traditional interpretation of it because I look at it again from a, how do I develop code and how do I test it. Uh, but it took me a while to, to really figure out precise rules. I, for, I like rules. Some people don't like rules. I like rules because they mean I have to think less. And so if I have a rule that says, if this touches hardware, it must not be in this layer. It must be in this other layer. Then I can think less. Where does the code go? It touches IO. It goes here. Right. It touches the random number generator. Therefore, it can't be in a domain. It must be in the application layer. Um, and so there's a lot of nuance and I can't like in the 14 hour live class, you know, spread, whether it's spread over two or four days, there's no way they can get that, that nuance because they're just learning like, what the heck is a hexagon? What the heck is an adapter? What, what are you talking about? And so like any learning, you can't, you can't cram, you can, right. And how well does that work? For the long term, very not temporary. very well. Yeah, right. It's it's just enough so you can take the exam and pass, and then you've forgotten it all, right? That's you know. Hey, you so, just described my whole uh, high school and college uh, life. <laughs> it worked. It worked, right? And you know, but it doesn't work in the real world. Like a lot of things that we learn in, in university that don't apply to the real world. And so, it's learning is a, is a lot of you know. One of the things that. I learned about learning and I kind of already intuitively knew that, but now I have like, you know, evidence to back it up is, um, and it may be obvious, but we learn from examples. We learn from examples. We don't learn from abstract and then look at examples and apply it. We build abstractions in our head from seeing lots of examples, right? What's a chair? Well, it's a thing that has four legs. Well, what about a stool? Is that a chair? Well, it has to have a back. Okay, but what if it has three, three legs, right? All these things, you see enough patterns and you start to create a generalization. Then you can have philosophical arguments about, is this a chair or not? Because it's a beanbag. But, um, and so it's that nuance and seeing constant examples. And so it's, we saw this before, we saw this, let's apply it here. Now we see a different example. It's close to the other one, but it's different. What do we do here? And it's that constant being exposed to differences and edge cases that that's how you really nail down the, those differences. And so um, those learning ensembles give me that opportunity to, to really point out on the fly in the moment what the difference is bet between things. 
And um, so you mentioned earlier, uh, kind of re uh, refactoring to hexagonal from outside in TDD, uh, and, and that might be a good a, a good launch pad for refactoring in small steps. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So um, one of the things that that I also have, so I have a community, a Discord community, and and one of the things that I started a couple years ago was a was a book club. Um, because I had been part of various, uh, in New York as part of the design pattern study group where I learned, first learned about design patterns. Um, and then in Silicon Valley, the Silicon Valley design pattern study group, uh, loved it. Um, and we were able to get access to, to Eric Evans when he was working on the book, things like that. Um, and I thought that, that, well, I want that. Right. And so I basically created it. And one of the books we read was, was Kent Beck's Test Driven Development by Example. I'm sure I had read it, um, but there's a difference between sort of reading it on your own and reading it and discussing it and talking about it with others. And I realized I was doing bigger steps. Like one of the things, if, if you've ever seen anybody like me, uh, you know, starting out teaching TDD, you start with the, the simple stuff and it's like, how do we make this test pass? Right. It's expecting eight. What do we do? We return eight. And I used to think that, ugh, really? Come on. Like, we know this is not going to be a, a literal constant. You're going to have a variable there. You're going to store it in something called balance. Mm -hmm. um, but what I learned from, from reading closely of, of Kent Beck's book was, sure, we could, we could take larger steps. But I actually find value in the smaller steps because uh, I, just, I, I noticed things that I didn't notice before. Like turning that literal and making it more flexible is a refactoring extract field. It's like, oh, like I did that, but I never thought about it that way. And so one of the things I see, and again, I see so much in these ensembles, like, wow, you're taking a big step here. Can we make this step smaller? Yeah. And um, and the outside in applies here too. Like I like the shift to TDD is not just, oh, I need to write a test first and then write code, is to shift your thinking from what do I want the thing to do without thinking about the implementation. Mm -hmm. We are so trained to, to think about the implementation while we're thinking about the test we wanna write that will test that implementation. I'm like, no, don't think about the implementation. What, do you, what little thing does it not do yet that you want it to do? Think about that. No, can we make that step smaller? Can we make the expectation smaller? Can we just do something smaller? Because um, it's like, I, I have this sort of visual in my head of when people are thinking about all the complexities, it's like this, this graph that just blows up of all these possibilities and if thens and decision-making. And I'm like, you've, you've already thought like three levels too deep. Let's just get this little piece solved. And every time I, I show that, people are like, oh, wow, like, yeah, this is so much better. Um, and, you know, and I, and I love that G. Paul Hill talks, talks a lot about this. It's like, it's faster. Yeah. It's actually faster. Once you get used to it, it's, it's just faster because you're solving smaller problems. And if you mess it up, it's a small mistake that's easily fixed. Yeah. And so the smallness of the, like, and I'm, and I'll be like, no, let's take that even smaller. No, even small. And, you know, and that kind of feedback, you just can't get any, anywhere else. 
Yeah, it's true. I, I think it's addicting too, once you do it, because problems start to become fun instead of stressful, yes. at least in my experience, right? Oh, absolutely. It's like, hey, something broke in this last commit. In the last commit, six files and a thousand lines. You're like, oh, you know, <laughs> where if it's like, oh, something broke in our last commit and it's like six lines, you're like, oh, fascinating. I wonder what it is in the six lines, you know, or, you know, <laughs> and or, one, uh, or my more my preference, one line or one line. Right. right? Yeah. You know, because exactly. it's yeah. like that might not my, you know, it's like, can, can we fix this? And 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 it's almost and it's almost a game. Like, what's the least I can get away with? <laughs> and that, and that's where it becomes you know there's this sort of code golf kind of things it's like how can i, I you know I, I use the word how can i cheat and it's not really cheating because the test passes yeah and then you know how can i cheat now and it you're you're absolutely right it it, it makes it so much more fun um and so much less anxiety producing because you're not like overwhelmed by the problem you're just like how do i do this little thing and how can yeah. i do it in in less code yeah, for sure. For sure. Right on. Well, well, thanks so much for uh, sharing with us today, Ted. We're starting to hit our time box. Yeah. So uh, yeah, before we close the show, is there anything you'd like to share a plug? Uh, yeah. So you can find out um, about my course. So my course is closed while, while I, pre so I basically had a launch launched and I'm going to relaunch uh, in November, but you can always follow me uh, on Twitter where I'm Jitter Ted. Um, my website is ted.dev, so ted.dev. I was very lucky to get that. Uh, <laughs> and so I post articles on, on this stuff. Um, I have a Discord community where we talk about this stuff. So one of the things that I also found was there's not a lot of places for people who are beyond the novice stage, but are not experts at TDD, but who want to learn about TDD or want to learn about refactoring or uh design and, and things like that and there wasn't really a good place that to talk about that so i basically created my own community for that um so if you go to ted.dev discord your people are welcome to, to join the discord the book club is is free we basically do zooms on on sundays to talk about books we're actually talking about patterns which i kind of avoided for a while but but we're we're having people were interested and it's like great let's talk about patterns that's totally fine but not just the gang of four oh god not just the gang of four um <laughs> there are a few hundred other patterns that are interesting so we'll be discussing those and people are welcome to to join that as well uh so yeah fantastic fantastic so to our audience uh yeah, we'd love to hear your opinions on your experiences with uh, traditional training versus if you've done some learning or ensembles or are interested in that, uh, your, your opinions on hexagonal architecture, the different styles of TDD inside, outside, in. We'd love your comments on Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and more and all the places. Uh, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear what you think. And uh, please share this anybody, uh, episode with anybody who might be interested in Maybe hexagons of ensembles, ensembles of hexagons or uh, <laughs> something like that. No, no. In all seriousness, uh, you know, to he, you know, sh if anybody's interested in hearing about, you know, a journey to, you know, really learning uh, some of these deep uh, patterns and they're really beneficial patterns in the software world. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. but until next time, uh, have a good one, y'all and talk to you later. Bye. Yes.